This is Hear Me Now, the preaching podcast. I'm Dr. John Nixon, Sr. And we came on this passage in our devotion last week, my wife and I. It struck me how relevant it is to what we're going through right now as a nation. Jumana was reading from John 12, and I got this overwhelming homiletic impulse, I guess you'd call it. You ever had that? Where you're listening to the text, and then it just presses you as a sermon, and you have to kind of stop yourself from picking up your pad and taking notes right then, right then and there. I wasn't sure altogether how it would fit you know, with what was going on right now, but I knew I wanted to explore it to see what it yielded. I did so. Something to share with you. But I wasn't planning, I was planning to share my personal story today, as you recall, but I'm going to have to put that off because this took precedence. And But as I worked on the text and as I prepared it, I realized around Wednesday that I couldn't really present it fully developed in one step. I had to make it two steps. So this is going to be part one. A two-part podcast. This is a setup. And next week, I'm going to actually go through the text. We're going to write a sermon together. Before I do so, though, I need to share some spiritual insights on recent events to kind of set it up. That's what it's in reference to. In particular, I want to compare January 6th and January 20, which appear to be polar opposites. There could hardly be a greater contrast between the attack on the Capitol and the inauguration of the new president at least on the surface, both historic days, both speaking volumes about what what kind of country we are. January 20, a new president inaugurated. January 6, the former president accused of inciting a riot. January 20, a sea of flags on the National Mall, almost 2,000, they say. January 6, American flags and Confederate flags side by side in the Capitol building. January 20, fireworks over the White House. Spectacular. January 6, firearms in the House of Republic. House of Representatives, excuse me. January 20, the swearing in of three new senators by the new vice president. January 6, vandalizing in the Senate chamber by a gang of hooligans. And the question becomes, which is the true America? Was January 6th an aberration, a a departure from the norm, something abnormal? Have we recovered from it, the way President Biden said? Have we learned from it and come out of it stronger on the other side? And will it never happen again? Is that what January 6th was? Was January 20 then a return to the, quote, new normalcy? Is the train back on the rails with a new conductor at the controls? Is it back on course? Can we relax now and breathe a sigh of relief? Which was the real America, January 6th or January 20th? I want to argue, starting today, hear me now, that they are both real America. January 6th, the same as January 20, because they spring from the same set of values. January 6th is America radicalized. January 20 is America civilized. But beneath the surface, they are both the same America. That's my premise. Two sides of the same coin. 
And the concern for us as Christians becomes, are we buying into the civilized version of American values, not understanding that on January 6th, the end result of those values were actually demonstrated? Some of us have done so already, not realizing that when these values play out, especially in the context of the last days, it'll look more like January 6th than January 20. January 20 is the future that is hoped for. January 6 is the future previewed. I know I sound crazy right now. Biased, a hater, they will say, an alarmist, but I'm none of these things. I want to present my argument biblically, pointedly. There is a sense of relief that the leadership of the country has changed, at least so far. The previous White House seemed so divisive, from the violence-provoking speeches, the endless claims of conspiracy, the incendiary tweets night and day. Everything seemed to always be about one against the other, us against them. That's, that was the tone of the White House. The new president seems to be of a different temperament. The daily press briefings are on again. Dr. Fauci is back in the podium, all smiles. The assault on the deadly pandemic is on. They're talking about another financial relief package. The new cabinet is being confirmed. Everything is coming up roses, or so it appears. But how relieved should we be? Is it a real change or just the appearance of one? Is it lasting or just temporary? So my question to us is, should we be concerned as a people of faith about letting our guard down so that we are more susceptible of being sucked into a set of values which at their core contradict the values of the kingdom of Christ? You cannot harmonize the both. Some of us have already bought into them. You can hear it in our language, in our goals, in, our, in the direction of the life that we have taken. So I want to caution us. I want to, I want to call us to biblical self-examination. I want to try and look at January 6th and January 20th in some kind, of, some kind of ordered way. So I've broken them down into three categories for us to consider. Three different lenses through which to view the two dates. Political, moral, and spiritual. We've heard a lot of political analysis on TV from different perspectives. We've also heard some moral questions raised, if not delved into as much. But we've not heard the spiritual perspective, which we don't expect to hear on the news. For spiritual understanding, we have to go to the Word, and that's where we come in. I want to discuss what I mean by spiritual understanding when we get to that part. It, it bears some discussion, but first of all, Look at my political analysis, if you will. We've seen the political views on the attack on the Capitol and how they differ. The left and the right, the liberal, the conservative, our politics is always divided. Not even something as earth-shattering as this can bring us together. We keep our separate points of view. So some political voices say that the insurrection is the former president's fault. Others say the president is not at fault. He was just blowing off steam and people are responsible for their own actions. 
Some say the protest was legitimate. Trump actually won the election, stopped the steal. Others say the protest was an attack on democracy. The fraud claims are bogus. Biden is the new president. Some voices say Trump should be allowed. Trump should never be allowed to hold political office ever again. That's why some are pressing for the impeachment. Others say Trump should remain a major political figure for years to come. Back and forth it goes with no resolution. You listen. You take a side. As soon as you do, you stop listening. Then you firm up your political position and become as stubborn in it as you can be. That's American politics. Neither January 20 nor January 6 changes that. That's who we are. That's our politics. Always divided. Always undercutting. Always attacking either openly or subtly. We can't expect better. That's how it's always been. What about morally? There are clear moral issues on display in response to the insurrection of January 6. Whatever your politics, it's impossible to deny the contradiction between the police response to the attack on the Capitol and the response to the protests on racial injustice that turn violent. Can you imagine police officers taking selfies with Black Lives Matter protesters, even rioters, as they force their way into the Capitol? Police officers. Can you picture an armed officer with his weapon holstered, quietly reminding black insurrectionists to be respectful as they rifle through the desk of senators looking for who knows what? You have to admit it. Can you picture hundreds of black men crashing through barricades, climbing through broken windows into the Capitol, shutting down a session of Congress, vandalizing the building, beating a police officer with an American flag, threatening the vice president of the United States, then reclining at the desk of the Speaker of the House with the feet up, and then just walk away, go home with just a handful of arrests. Can you imagine that? And if you think discrimination is not a sin, not a moral issue, because it's not a criminal offense, then remember James 2, 89. We're people of faith. James 2, 89. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. That's the moral law. That's the NIV. New Living Translation says, if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. Favoritism in the Bible is counted a sin. You know why? Because it's not love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law is founded on the two principles of love to God and love to neighbor. Favoritism breaks that principle, whether it's based on wealth or race or culture or tribe, and especially within the body of Christ. God counts it as sin. Have you seen the earlier part of that, James 2, 1 to 4? It reads, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, I love that, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting 
wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It was a moral issue in what took place on January 6th. The Bible counts favoritism as a violation of God's law. But I want to spend the most time talking about the spiritual lens through which to view January 6th and January 20. There's a spiritual analysis to be looked into as well. And it runs deeper than politics, deeper than morality. That is, morality in terms of outward deeds that can be seen. As Christians, we see the political, we see the moral, which the world also sees. But there's more for us to see and judge by. We must take it to the spiritual level, or we become susceptible to being deceived ourselves. Without the, without the spiritual view, we will tend to relax when we see outward things subside and cry peace and safety when there really is no peace. Let me break down what I mean. I want to try and simplify because spiritual analysis, spiritual things can be complicated sometimes. I want to take a few minutes on this. What do we mean when we talk about taking things to a spiritual level? We have a sense of spirituality. We know there is a spiritual realm, a realm we don't see beyond our senses. We can't see angels. They may have whole, whole conversations in our presence. We don't hear a word. On the opposite side, there are spiritual forces of evil at work. Ephesians 6, 1 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So there's a spiritual realm with spiritual beings. The Bible, therefore, commends to us spiritual weapons to do battle. Not material ones. Righteousness, readiness, the gospel, faith, Ephesians 6, lists these as the armor of God. This is what Peter didn't understand when he drew his sword on the night Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. He thought to defend his Lord, fight his way out of a jam, not realizing the deeper spiritual meaning behind the arrest and why Jesus did not call down legions of angels to his defense like he could have done. Instead, he let himself be taken. The disciples couldn't believe their eyes as Jesus walked away in the custody of hooligans who came at him with torches and lanterns and clubs. There was a deeper spiritual significance that they did not see. If Jesus had resisted, if angels had come to rescue him, you and I and the disciples, we would all be lost. It was a spiritual view, a spiritual reality. What were the forces at work on January 6th and January 20, forces of good and evil, that we don't see? What's the significance we do not hear on the news? We've had a change of presidents, but the president of the United States doesn't hold the future. The spiritual realm does not comply with congressional legislation. 
Human laws don't determine reality. They're just a reflection of how we think and act in a world that we don't control. So we need a higher view. There's another aspect of spirituality now beyond the spiritual realm of the unseen. Stay with me now. There's a spirituality that is not focused on spiritual beings. I'm not talking about spiritualism now, communication with the dead, mediums, palm readers, Ouija boards. That's not what I'm talking about. Not spiritualism, but spirituality, or to put it another way, spiritual mindedness. It has to do with a particular worldview, a way of thinking, a way of seeing, a set of values inspired by the Holy Spirit that is based on the spiritual realm that we can't see. Spiritual mindedness. I've often been asked, Pastor, how do you define a spiritual person? What is a spiritual person? I try to simplify it, break it down to this. A spiritual person is someone who is always conscious, conscious of the presence of God, even in everyday situations, and lives in response to his presence at all times. In other words, somebody who is God conscious, that's a spiritual person, like Jesus was. He talks about his life and how he lived it in John 5, 19 and 20. You should read the whole John chapter 5 sometime. Here's 19 and 20. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. I love that. The father shows the son what he's doing. He shows him the spiritual significance. Then the son, Jesus, does exactly what the father tells him to do. That's how he lived his life. That's spiritual mindedness. That's God consciousness. We all want to get there. That's our journey of sanctification. We want to become those kind of people as we grow in Christ. So there's a level of spiritual perception, not related to the natural eye, that sees more than meets the eye. Spiritual insight. Based on a spiritual mind that the Holy Spirit speaks to. Matthew 16, you remember, is an example of how Jesus revealed spiritual mindedness works from the divine side. Matthew 16, 13 to 17, you know this passage. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. That spiritual insight. On the divine side, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, enlighten your mind to be able to see who I am. Flesh and blood could not have revealed it to you. Research, science, none of that could have revealed it to you. Only the Holy Spirit reveals to the spiritual mind who Jesus Christ actually is. I'm not talking about mysticism. I'm not talking about spiritualism. I'm talking about a spirit 
in harmony with the Holy Spirit that can be led by Him as He impresses and leads and guides us every step of our lives. God is interested in everything in our lives, even the small things that seem mundane, too small for His attention. God's interested in all of it. So when we're spiritually minded, which we all strive to be, we look deeper and measure by different standards because our values are different, our worldview is different. When we're spiritually minded, hear me now, we question popular conclusions drawn by the culture. Even when they're generally accepted, we question them and we take them and look further into them based on what the word says. So when something's popular, everybody's agreeing with it, we step back and we say, let me see if this really is true according to the word. Everybody says it's right, doesn't mean it's right. Everybody says it's clear, doesn't mean it's clear. Everybody says we should do it, doesn't mean we should do it. The analysis that counts with us is a spiritual analysis. Beneath the surface, based on revelation of God in his word. So we would say there's no comparison between January 6th and January 20. We might even say they're opposites. That's how they look on the surface. I want to argue that spiritually they are the same because they are both based on the same values and the same worldview. In one case, those values are radicalized. In the other case, they are civilized. But beneath the surface, they are both the same. I just thought of this thing that I read in Oswald Chambers. He was talking about um, Genesis, how after Cain uh, was confronted by God and went off, the Bible says, Cain then went and built a city. Chambers says, this was the beginning of civilization. Cain built cities, not God. God gave a garden. God gave the earth. Cain built a city. So, so Chambers says, the first city, civilization, was built by a murderer. And the nature of civilization is murder under disguise. Murder made proper. Murder in the form of Competition, he says. Competition means in order for me to win, you have to lose. That's civilization. So American culture, civilized, is still earthly culture. Here's what I want to show us in John 12, the John 12 sermon that I've worked on. I want to walk with you through that next week. I want to listen to it. I want to treat it. I'm going to, I'm going to combine those two, listen and treat the text. Then we're going to go through and check the meaning for God's meaning in Christ. Make sure we're on the right biblical track. Then we're going to we're going to put it in a form, you know, give a title to it, introduction, conclusion, just like we did last time. I'm going to try and do a speed reading of it and present this sermon to you, John 12, which is a criticism, rather a critique, rather on the values that we see exposed January 6th, January 20. And I want to do it based on a Bible character who showed those values. I'm going to title it The American Disciple. Can you guess which one I'm talking about? The American Disciple. I want you to read John 12. I invite you to read it and start pondering it. Research it if you want. And when you come 
together with me next week. You'll have something to think about and compare with the, the thoughts that I've had and see how they line up. Let me, in fact, let me take a minute and read it now. John 12, 1 to 8. I didn't plan to, but I have my Bible right here. <clears throat> this is the passage for next week. Next summer we're going to write. John 12, 1 to 8. This is the NIV. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now come verses 4 to 8. These are the main verses I focused on as I was going through this sermon last week. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he was used to helping himself to what was put in it, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. Verse 7, Jesus steps in. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. She, she should, excuse me. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. What does that mean? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What does that mean? I found those two interesting. John 12, 1 to 8, especially 4 to 8. I want to commend it to you. Look it over if you have time this week. And when you come, come together next week, you have something uh, to think about a little more. Let me close with this. <clears throat> One of my wife's former students, a uh, student worker, actually, when she was running a department there at one of the universities, uh, Nellie, she took the analogy of Christ's birth pains as Christ, not, the, not Christ's birth the earth's birth pains, as Christ used in his Matthew 24 prophecy, and she applied it to world conditions today. Matthew 24, 7 to 8, you know the verse. Jesus said, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains, Jesus said. The same symbol in Romans 8, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to this present time. Well, my wife's student looked at that and she said, you know, labor pains rise and fall. Contractions ebb and then they subside. In the same way, she says, there is an ebb and flow to world events. Sometimes they surge, sometimes they relax. But when they do relax, we must not forget, it is still the same delivery, the same event. It will not cease till the baby is delivered. In this case, the delivery is the end of the world. So, so, I didn't give birth, but I was in that room where my wife gave birth, gave birth to our children. I don't know about birth pains, but I witnessed them. Our firstborn, 21 hours of labor for my dear girl, 21 years old, 21 hours of labor. She, she was going through a time when things would subside. Then she could feel it coming on and that pain would hit her. 
You know, those contractions. I was in, I had some knee surgery a year ago, two years ago, and I was in the, right after the surgery, they take you right away to the little exercise room where a therapist begins to work out your knee, knee surgery, work out your knee right then and there. It's still sore from the surgery. They make you work it out. It's painful. Stretch it. They bend it, make you stand on it. One woman was in there with me on the other side of the gym. She said, she was, ah, ah, she was screaming. She said, this is worse than childbirth. She said, January 6th, the attack on the Capitol was an extreme contraction. Ah! January 20, the peaceful transfer of power was a respite from the contractions. Breathe, honey. Breathe. But don't get too relaxed. It's the same event because they are both built on the same values. I want to explore that next time. On that piece of text in John 12, 1 to 8, especially 4 to 8. I hope you take the opportunity this week. It's a rich passage. I hope you take the opportunity to look at it this week. Pray over it. We'll tackle it together next week. It's enough for today. Until next time, remember, keep humble and be faithful.